Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Howdy, Becky. Hi, John, Julie, and a very special rock star today. I mean, we have got a world changer on the line with us today, and honestly, her reputation precedes her. The people in our life that know Beergit personally have just emoted and reflected on what an incredibly kind, visionary, wonderful human being we get the honor of talking to today. I really think she's like the godmother. She like is one the of godmother. the godmothers <laughs> of philanthropy. She is like one of the philanthropy whisperers, and I am just feel so I blessed. I love that. Aww. Yes. So let me tell you a little bit about Birgit Burton. She is, is the founder of the African American Development Officers Network. And the chair elect of AFP Global. That Just is the association organization. for fundraising professionals. Casual. Very <laughs> casual. But she's also the executive director of foundation relations for the Georgia Institute of Technology Office of Development in Atlanta. We love Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So many listeners in Atlanta appreciate you guys listening too. But she is a visionary leader. I want to share a little bit about your career highlights. I mean, raising more than $500 million over your 30 year career, so impactful. Most recently, $300 million toward the Institute of Technology's successful capital campaign, which is just so impressive. But, you know, we had the chance to talk to Birgit a couple of weeks ago just to get to know her. And what sticks out to me is just that, specifically with standing up the association, is that you saw a need. You felt a need. You saw a space that you didn't feel supported or didn't feel like you had a place at the table So you literally went and created the table and you allowed people to be seen, to elevate. And now you're casting vision and dream for more diversity, more equity, more inclusion in this space, which desperately needs it. And you're leading that conversation and you've got big dreams um, to unpack there. So I really want to dive into that conversation today, but just everything you can imagine, service on board and a mentor to so many people um, but just an incredible honor to have you here today and an aspiring Broadway singer. Might as well tack that on too. <laughs> we already asked her to sing. She wouldn't do it. Sorry, but guys. It's okay. Maybe on our follow-up episode, we can get her to sing. <laughs> yes. But welcome. Yes. That might be possible. So glad Thank you're here. You. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I really am. Well, Birgit, would you give us a little bit of your story? Connect the dots. What made you land in such an influential place now? I'm sure you had no idea this is where you would end up many years ago. So I am, you know, going to go all the way back to the beginning and I will make this very short, but this is only going to, you know, open up the door for more questions and maybe a follow-up podcast on this. But I don't know if I shared this with you, this might come to you as a surprise, but I um, was born in Germany, um, which you might not have gotten from that, that chapter in Collecting Courage is that. My mother, who is German, and I don't know if she's still alive, um, gave birth to me and um, decided to keep me. I don't know what the story is around that. There's some speculation, but she decided to keep me and she kept me until I was almost three years old. And then she um, decided that the better life for me would be to be with a family that I, um, you know, 
could see myself in that it looked uh, a little bit more um, light because I definitely am brown and I stand out. I didn't blend in. And, um, and so my parents, my adoptive parents were stationed in Germany. My dad was in the Air Force and they had been married 10 years without children. And this was way back in the day y'all, before, you know, all the fertility stuff. And, you know, it was like, okay, you didn't, you know, have a child. They didn't do a whole lot of figuring out what it was, but they decided to adopt. And there was an agency there that knew um, that, you know, my mother wanted a family to have me. And so my parents uh, got me. And so I never spent a night, I spent one night, but in the orphanage when my mother delivered me. Can you picture that? Let's let's think about that for two seconds. Can you imagine you know, giving your child up at almost three years old and the impact, I don't remember it. The odd thing is I remember days following it, but I don't remember, you know, those days. So I remember being with my new parents and I remember, you know, many things about that experience. And so, um, you know, I thought about that when my son was almost three and it tore me apart to think I could never... I would be selfish enough that I just would have struggled and had a miserable life trying to, to make sure, you know, he was okay than to give him away. So how selfless was that? My parents adopted me and they brought me back to the United States, brought me to the United States, um, across the SS United States, a chip. Oh my goodness. I was back in, you know, with the big steam things yeah. with the red around the black ship, the whole thing. So fast forward, um, my, I met my grandmother. And my grandmother actually was a minister. She pastored a church for 30 some years in a very white community. And she actually, there's pictures of her, newspaper pictures of her with with white, other white ministers. And um, I used to go with her sometimes when she would visit people in the community and she would take clothing. She would even brush children's hair, you know, that um, whose parents were, you know, having challenges. Um, before they went to school. So that was like my connection, my experience of feeling what it felt like to connect and give, mm-hmm. you know, to people. And so fast forward all the way to, you know, um, ask the, the desire for a Broadway career, another story for another day. <laughs> but actually, I made it into um, a program that only took 15 uh, uh, freshmen um, at State University of New York at Fredonia. Um, they had over eight, 900 people audition. And in that first year, my advisor told me that I should consider another career, not because I wasn't talented, but because he felt that it would be too difficult for me as a black person to be successful. Oh now, we're not talking 1940, y'all. We're talking like this was 1980. He was telling me this. And I listened to him. I believed him. Never shared that with my parents who were the first in their family to go to college. You know, my father would have had a fit if he had known that mm-hmm. I left because of that. Um, and so I I stumbled into a fundraising career uh, instead by accident, um, doing a, an internship for an ad agency. And the, the chairman, the president, uh, was involved with the United Negro College Fund. So I stumbled into that and, you know, realized that I had a, a knack, a passion, and an interest for fundraising. One, the nonprofit industry is so blessed that you made that hard pivot. Two, I really want to thank you for 
being so honest and open and raw about like the systemic racism that existed for you even in the 80s and and again i mean even to today but specifically in that instance because these are the kind of conversations we have got to have in this community we yeah. need to understand because okay. we need to figure out how we can radically do something differently that makes someone feel like they can chase their passion yeah. you know in a in the purest sense without any roadblocks we talk about that all the time and so mm-hmm. i'm incredibly sorry that happened to you you know broadway's loss is our gain here in the nonprofit sector <laughs> that's so true but I also, I think the thing, Birgit, that's just so interesting to me about your story, which I have to say that might be the most interesting story we've ever had on the podcast of how someone's gotten into philanthropy, <laughs> but it's not lost on me that your mother, your birth mother made the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. and she gave you up in the spirit of trying to give you a better life and trying to give you a life surrounded by people who looked like you. And then yeah. you my friend, in turn, created a nonprofit organization for people who couldn't find other people who looked like them. Mm -hmm. That is an extremely powerful, almost love letter back to your birth mother that you have carried her legacy on in such an important way. And I just want to thank you because we have talked to a couple people who are part of the African American Development Officer Organization. It's an awesome organization. They have an incredible inclusivity pledge. They've got amazing resources. We will definitely link that up in the show notes, but it just feels so full circle. And um, I just have to connect that back. And I just want to give you like the biggest virtual hug because I think that is a really cool part of your story. Well, thank you. When I ended up at uh, Georgia Tech after 11 years with the United Negro College Fund, where I'd say 95% of, of my colleagues were Uh, people of color. I ended up at Georgia Tech for my second career, and I didn't know that I was the first frontline fundraiser of color that Georgia Tech had hired. I didn't realize that. They they didn't announce it. They didn't say, hey, you know, and I saw other um, Black people, you know, in the development office. I mean, there were at that time 80, 90 of us, but I didn't realize the other people of color were not fundraisers, frontline fundraisers. So, Um, When I realized that, I wanted to create a network selfishly, you know, where I could be with people and the color of my skin didn't stick out. You know what I mean? So um, I just wanted to be able to have conversations about our jobs. Yes, some of the racism we might have experienced, you know, uh, I'm, you know, my first encounter with an alum at Georgia Tech. Um, you know, it was at a luncheon, a scholar's luncheon. And he said, you know, I remember the good old days when there were no blacks or women at Georgia Tech. And that was in my second week at Tech. And I was like, whoa, what have I gotten myself into? You know, like people really think it's not, he's 85 years old, but still, you know, and that was true for him. Those were the good old days. So I just wanted to find, you know, community and that's all. And so when I worked for the United Negro College Fund, the, the HBCUs that were a part of UNCF in Atlanta were right down the street from Georgia Tech. So I thought, hey, let me reach out and see if they just want to get together. Like, let's just get together. And hey, what if I invite them to Georgia Tech? Because I wonder if anybody's really been on the Georgia Tech campus because 
the Olympics came in 96, right? Mm -hmm. And the oldest, um, uh, you know, formal projects, housing projects, was across from Georgia Tech in the country, the oldest one in the country, was across from Georgia Tech. And the school that was in that community was called uh, Fowler Street Academy. And through the years, no child had ever attended Fowler Street Academy and ended up going to Georgia Tech one day, ever. So when they tore down the projects and the school, for the look, for the Olympics, the, the city did that because they didn't want that to be, you know, in the in the picture for the Olympics, they built another school, a beautiful school called Centennial Place Academy. And, uh, you know, there was a dream that maybe one day some students from there would end up at, at Georgia Tech. Maybe we would, you know, reach out across North Avenue and, you know, embrace this school. So I was thinking this would be, might be the first time that, that you know, people from um, the HBCUs had been on the campus, the Georgia Tech campus. So I hosted the breakfast. We had such a good time, you guys. <laughs> we had such a wonderful time. And we decided to do it again the next year. And it wasn't just about being Black, because then we started talking about best practices. I mean, regular fundraising things, but our our color of our skin wasn't an issue. Does that make sense? It was like, that is not what showed up when we walked in the door. We were all Black, whatever, fine sat down, we talked about those things. So that was 25 people. And now it's grown over 23 years to, to 3,000. I'd say um, about 10% are allies, um, not people of color who support, um, in, <clears throat> excuse me, what we do. And, um, and so it's been a great network over the years. I mean, your story is is difficult to hear, and I realize we are third party 30 years later responding to it, but um, thank you for standing up to the voices and the hate that you endured to get to this place because, you know, one of our core values is community is everything, and yeah. that is a thread of of your story, and you saw, and you're a testament to the power of how much easier it is to push together in with community. And right. I love that you've been a champion of that um, with so much of your story. So thank you for sharing that and goodness. So I think I want to dive into the African-American Development Officers Network. Can you share with us kind of the founding story? What was the impetus for it and where are you today? So, you know, the reaching out, creating um, really so when I had that first gathering, that breakfast, and selfishly, I wanted them to come to Tech and see Tech, Georgia Tech, and see see somebody here, you know, um, uh, of color, you know, is working on this campus. And then I also wanted to to see if there are ways we could partner. What could we do, you know, our our universities with, you know, my university with your university? How could we grow this so there are more opportunities? you know, to, um, to partner on projects, on ideas. Um, and we decided after a few years in to start a conference. And so the conference was at the time, the AABO conference, we would have speakers come and address issues of diversity, but also issues of um, talk uh, about best practices. And in a way that people who um, could really use the support could get it. You know, some of the things that, um, you know, you're expected to know, you know, in in the job that you do that you might not feel 
um, as equipped or, or you kind of might feel like an imposter. You know, I got this job and I'm not exactly sure, you know, so we could address those things. I remember once the um, executive director of the Coca-Cola Foundation, um, his name was uh, Michael Bivens, and he came and spoke to us. You know, a black man to a group of, of black professionals. I'm going to say for that meeting, there might have been 75 of us. And he said, you know, make sure that you are not just invited to be a part of a discussion because of the optics that you bring diversity to the group. You know, he said he's had people come. He had people come to Coca-Cola um, to talk about a program. And clearly they brought the black person, you know, uh, um, from the office to be a part of the conversation. And they had nothing to contribute. They were just kind of sitting there to be the person of color. And he would direct the question and they had nothing to offer. So he said, don't just be the, the token person, you know, be the best you can be, know your job, contribute, make sure that you're invited when you have something to contribute. But he also told a story to us of getting on the elevator at the Coca-Cola. I don't know if you've been in Atlanta, you know, the Coca-Cola headquarters, big, tall building um, in Atlanta. And um, he said he had been out of the building for lunch or something, came in, got in the elevator, and he spoke to these two white gentlemen who had gotten on the elevator with him, and they did not speak back. They did not return the greeting. Um, they just kept talking and ignored him, and he said, mm, okay. They got to the floor, and they got off and went one direction. He went another. Um, about 10 minutes later, they were brought into their his office because they were there to meet him. And they didn't know that he was the person that they were going to be meeting with. So when they walked in and saw that he was the executive director, they were mortified. You know, they were like, oh, oh, well, you know, because they realized that they had, you know, uh, ignored him. And so even at the high level that he, you know, was at when he was just a regular black man, he didn't earn their, you know, um, respect and, and, and a greeting. So he was sharing with us, um, you know, his experience uh, from working with the fundraiser to his experience of being an executive director, kind of giving the real, um, you know, uh, truth and the real uh, honesty behind, you know, being a person of color showing up in, in this philanthropy work that we do. Um, so that's how the that's kind of how the conference grew. And then after about, I don't know, 10 years, we partnered with the Council for Advancement and Support of Education. And the conference has grown. Now it's the uh, Diverse Philanthropy and Leadership Conference, um, about 250, 300 people. Again, like the most painful stories that you're sharing, but speak to just... Um, what an important role that y'all are playing in lifting these stories and finding community, locking arms and um, making an impactful difference now. So I would love to, we want to talk about how we can apply some of these principles into the nonprofits that are listening today. And I want to put out a disclaimer because as white people in o in Oklahoma that have spent the majority of our life in Oklahoma, our perspective is not always enlightened I get words wrong. I get vocabulary wrong. I get definitions oh, wrong, yeah. all that. But yeah. on top of this, 
my mind has just grown and my heart has grown leaps and bounds over the last year. And I'm thankful to so many people that have stepped up and shared their experiences and have grown my heart and understanding. And I just want to make sure that this conversation, which is building on many that we've done over the last year on the podcast, is not, the answer is not to check the diversity box. So if you're in that camp, you may as well shut down this podcast because that's not what this conversation is. Um, that may have be the starting place of where you're at, but we're going to talk about really the evolved way of how do we really get more inclusion in our industry. And that is about taking a stand about building the entire pipeline, building the entire process for how people feel that they can show up authentically and not feel like they're, you know, not seen, not being able to be their full self in the workplace. And that is so much. So I would love to talk to you about this, building the talent pipeline of philanthropy today. Um, and just, you know, it's something that I know you're passionate about. If you kind of walk our listeners through, where do you start with this conversation and give us some vision of where to go? So um, I appreciate that. I really do. And let me say that none of us are perfect, right? I, I don't care, um, you know, how you identify. Um, you know, I speak a lot, but I am always checking in to try to make sure that I am staying, you know, um, as current as possible, which is a challenge because I, I was speaking uh, somewhere in, in the fall. Uh, Toronto. I was speaking to a group in Toronto and somebody reached out afterwards um, and I had used a chart and I had a, a gender question and I had made had a, a major misstep uh, on that particular part of the chart. And I said, um, and, and the person reached out to me, I said, help me, you know, help me. I want to learn. I I'm, I'm, will make mistakes, but um, I want to learn. And um, you know, and, and I'm going to answer your question, but I just want to take the opportunity to say one thing there about apology. We don't know how to apologize. We apologize and don't let the apology rest. We have to put but or we have to um, explain what our intent was. I'm sorry that I said that, you know, I hurt your feelings or I insulted you or I, I'm sorry. but. What I was trying to do was just explain X, Y, Z. We need to, and I ask all your, your, your viewers to think about it and apologize and say, I am so sorry I offended you. I didn't mean to. Forgive me. And let it lay there. It's so simple. Like the pot, like it is. But we don't do that. We don't do that, Becky. We we want to to explain and justify well but i said that you know because what i really meant was and you've taken everything you can't you haven't just let it simply rest in i apologize please forgive me and i've had to learn that one so along the journey you know we're we're always learning things and i heard somebody on on good morning america this morning say um uh a disabled person you know, and I was like, no, a person with a disability, it's person first. Yeah. You know, it's the person is not, that is not defining who they are. So we've learned things every day on this journey. We're, we're, we're making mistakes. So don't beat yourself up, you know, because if you have good intentions and, you know, you are, I, I've had people say, well, what do you people want to be called? You know, do you oh want to be called black, African-American? And I always laugh because I was born in Germany. 
My mother is German, and I just found my birth father two years ago here in the States, by the way, and he's um, uh, from Barbados, family is from Barbados, and in New York, they call Barbadoans Bajans, so I'm a German Bajan. I'm not even African-American. I'm a German Bajan, so, you know, we really want to get down to the real, you know, so right. somebody says, what do you want to be called? I'm like, Birkin? Human. I, mean, a I human. understand the yeah. challenge. Mm. I get it. You know, are you black? Are you African-American? It is difficult and it's, it's evolving. You know, we are using BIPOC now. And so uh, sometimes it's just safer to say, what do you feel most comfortable? Whatever the form is, you know? Um, yes. I, this is such a great conversation about how to be a human being, how to have empathy, how to see all people. I, I, and honestly, I, I understand for everyone listening, like this is, this is a hard conversation to, to sift is. through, but we have to work through the hard conversations because until we know the weight of pain, we talk about this all the time. We mm-hmm. don't know how to lean into change. And so understand and change the behavior. So I'm sorry, exactly. keep going. So when we're getting, you know, um, how do we bring diversity you know, into our organization. Well, first of all, this is, this is my opinion. It's inclusion that we're bringing in, right? Diversity is the the measurable result. If we have inclusion, then we the end result will be a diverse, you know, um, team. So people, I am, you know, a part of uh, panels and webinars and stuff where people get on and they run down this whole list of things. And it's very, you know, it's very deep and, and involved and I get lost, you know, and, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if I'm somebody that tuned in and I say, you know, I want to start from ground zero, what do I do? Uh, you know, if you walk into our organization and you called everybody, you know, to the, to the front, you would see, you know, a sea of homogenous people, you know, so what, how do we do where, you know, I love this one. Where are all the professionals of color? We don't even know where to, to find them. Well, well, they are out there and, you know, you've got to, to put the, you know, the jobs in places where people are looking, such as the AABO uh, network. And um, you can post it in LinkedIn. You have to be careful, get um, advice and counsel on how to write your job description. So that it's, you know, um, and you can get a consultant to help you so that you write it so that it's, you know, um, clear that you want, uh, you know, to invite people, um, you know, diverse people to be a part of your group. But I'm discovering, you know, even before last year that we're doing a better job of, um, you know, attracting and maybe getting a little bit better at hiring, a little bit better at hiring. Let me talk um, to that for just a second, though, on the hiring thing. Um, one thing that people don't always say, but they think is, well, sure, we want diversity and we have to lower the bar. Oh. So it's like we have to lower the bar um, and lower our expectations so that, you know, we can get uh, diverse candidates as if you can't find candidates who can meet your expectations for your organization. And here are some simple things that that um, organizations, the hiring managers aren't thinking of, especially when it comes to fundraising, you all. Here's something, you know, you look at the portfolio, how much money have you raised? 
You know, that's a big thing because we are, you know, metrics is huge when it comes to fundraiser and expectations. When I worked for the United Negro College Fund, I had a goal of a million dollars a year. I still say that was the hardest job I ever had. And I had to raise a million dollars. As you can see, uh, you know, from my um, my bio, I mean, the money that I've raised, the bigger chunks of money, and I, I probably raised, you know, like um, 15 million in my 11-year career. But the big money that I've raised at, at Georgia Tech, you know, buildings, um, you know, amazing programs, um, that money is easier than that million dollars that I raised each year. So I want to, why not hire somebody that really knows how to roll up their sleeves, do a job, a, a difficult job, raising money for historically black colleges and universities in Buffalo, New York, which at the time was identified as one of the, the most racist cities in our country. I mean, give me a pat on the back. I want to hire me. You know, so we don't take those things into consideration. They will look at a, a somebody coming from a small HBCU and say, well, they don't have the experience. You know what a challenge it is? Some of those offices are one and two people offices and they have to do it all. I want somebody that has learned how to do it all, you know, with with very little budget. So those are the kinds of, you know, um, uh, um, that's the kind of scrutiny that shows up when we're, we're hiring and we're passing over diverse um, opportunities. Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you see and activate donors at every level. And Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising. And we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized donor engagement. Sound like Virtuous may be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. I mean, that's just such a powerful thing because that's a bullet on the resume that you could say, hey, yes. we don't have any, we don't have anything to worry about. We're accepting of diverse candidates, but you have one bullet that says you need to have raised X dollars. You're automatically yes. missing the point. And yep. this is what we're out. talking about is the next level of inclusion is looking at those kinds of things. And then the hiring process, I can tell you all, I've collected the stories. I come to AADO. They email, they call, they share their experiences. Listen, I had one two hours ago, two hours ago. We're not talking about 1960. Two hours ago, I make no stories up. I was talking to a woman. She was an exceptional, um, you know, woman of color. And she called me and said, oh, my goodness, I was interviewed for a position. And she's got search firms coming uh, after her. Um, and uh, um, she said that the the firm, the CEO, a woman, said to, uh, to in response to her saying, this job really requires a salary of $25,000 more. I'd like to ask you to consider this. This salary is really low. And I definitely am the person for this job, $25,000. And the woman agreed, but said to her. I could get a whole bunch of white women who would take this job at this salary as it is. 
And she was absolutely floored that she said that to her. She obviously said, if, you know, first of all, you know, you're saying this and representing this organization and, you know, I don't want to work for that organization if they have you representing them. And this is the message that you're, you're delivering. Um, So, and, and then when we talk about uh, people coming into the organization, you know, we um, attract, we uh, recruit, hire, um, but what about retention? The stories of retention, um, you know, we, we let you in now it's your job to, to fit in. It's your job to fit in. And we don't think about those things, even as simple as a team of, of colleagues going to, to Joe's Bar and Grill after work, you know, um, uh, down the street, because they've done that all the time. And somebody can't go because they're a single parent and they have two kids that are coming home from school that they need to be there for, you know, and that, that's not just somebody of color. But I'm saying when we're considering having a, um, you know, a, a culture and atmosphere where people fit in. They never get to go down the street to Joe's Bar and Grill and be with the team. How about a lunch gathering? And how about at a place where um, that person can get a, a vegan meal? You know, um, how about recognizing and celebrating um, other uh, celebrations that you might not be familiar with? Why don't you help us understand and bring some food in that we can experience and learn? We don't think of those things. And then the last thing I'll say about that is, have a team, you know, Becky, John, Julie, and Birgit, let's come together and be a welcome crew for, you know, um, the, the people that are coming in. You don't have to put just one person in that role. Let's have a team and let's embrace, you know, um, somebody and help them understand the culture and understand the organization. And let's have them be a part of a stretch project so they get some visibility doesn't always have to be you, John. You don't always have to be the one that gets picked by the boss as the favored one and you're happy and you go skip it off and do the job. You can say, you know, thanks, Joe. Can I ask Birgit to be a part of this, this team on this project? Because um, you know what? She's I've worked with her on some things. She's really talented when it comes to blah, blah, blah. Or this would be a great way to amplify her voice give her an opportunity. We all can play a role in how we elevate and support, you know, people. Um, I had an organization and then I'll pause. I had an organization ask me to do a survey of their, their team. I like doing a diversity survey. What does your team think? How do they feel? We did this survey and the team was irate. They're like, we don't have diverse leadership. We, blah, blah, you know, and these weren't all people of color. These were non-people of color. And um, the, the head, she didn't want me to share the survey. She's like, never mind. <laughs> She's like, never mind. We won't share the results. I don't feel comfortable with that. So we've got to hold our leadership accountable. And if we come together as a team, then we can go further. It's not, I just sit here and think, I don't know what everybody else is getting out of this, but I feel like I am growing and having this veil lifted 
over every time we have one of these conversations, it's like we are peeking behind the curtain to see <laughs> what life is really like for people who are not like us. And yeah. I love this conversation. I so appreciate how um, honestly you're talking to us. I am very glad you're not sugarcoating anything because I want to know exactly what the scenario is and how I can help. And we've heard a lot of these trends on the podcast. The one that I'm thinking of um, when Kashana Paul Palmer came on. She talks about, you know, if, if you are someone who wants to get more inclusion in your organization, that's wonderful. Yes. We don't want you to just check the box, but the culture is really an outgrowth of your policies, of procedures, yes. of your working yeah. practices, of yeah. your norms. And it's like, we all get so busy. We forget about that. And so it's not just to your point, Birgit, it's not just hiring someone. It's about, again, retaining them. It's about creating, how do we create a succession strategy so they can be promoted, so they can grow? And I'm not just saying people, you know, of, of diverse backgrounds. I'm saying mm -hmm. any human being. And what this mm -hmm. is, is a call to arms to me to be kind, to be mm -hmm. human. So Birgit, please keep um, taking our blinders off, educating us, giving us examples of how we can pour in because that is how we change movements. Okay, the last thing on that is I pivot <laughs> just a little because we do want to change the way that, that our world is, the way that our sector is. And we talked about this a little bit um, before we started recording and we have some serious alignment here. Talk about how we prepare the next generation of minority students to become nonprofit mm -hmm. professionals because we believe that they are kind of an untapped potential. Our high school students, our college students who are looking for the, what am I going to do with my life? How mm -hmm. do we pour into them and tell them that this is a space where their gifts are valued? Yeah. Well, I love that because it didn't happen for me. I stumbled into it as, as most of my contemporaries did, you know, um, we all have stories uh, you know, of um, what we were going to do and how we ended up in fundraising. So now it's really a respected, you know, field. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts that it is one of, if not the fastest growing professions between 2018 and 2028, I believe. It's, it's growing by like between 10 to 15%. Wow. And we know what that's a, a result of. I mean, less government funding, you know, um, organizations are really having to reach out for, you know, private um, sources of support. And so, um, and organizations are recognizing they need fundraisers, you know, to, to organize their fundraising campaigns. So it is a, a true profession. Listen, when I stumbled in, I used to laugh about it and say it was better, you know, to admit to playing a piano in a bar than to admit to being a fundraiser. You know, people <laughs> go, oh, here, here comes the fundraiser. Hold on to your wallet. It was a joke. But now, you know, we are um, in this. I don't have the the um, the report to back this up, so I apologize for saying this. But there was a report. I think it was Bank of America that said that people of high net wealth. Um, depend more on their development, you know, relationship, their fundraising relationship with their organizations that they support and their alma maters and whatnot, more than their financial investment, you know, advisor. Um, wow. advisor. Yes. Interesting. So we, we have a reason to let these young people know. 
And every time I talk to someone who knows a little bit about it, uh, fundraising as a profession, there's always something that they're passionate about, Mm -hmm. that they get excited about. And I'm like, what better job to have than to have one where you're raising money for something you absolutely care about, that when you get up in the morning, you get excited about the work that you're going to do. So one of the things that AADO is doing is partnering with the Association of Fundraising Professionals to um, establish more collegiate chapters, more AFP collegiate chapters that focus on, um, you know, providing uh, information and, you know, connecting um, these students with careers in fundraising. And so uh, there aren't, they think there might be one AFP chapter, um, collegiate chapter at an HBCU. There was one at Spelman. I actually established that one in 2010 when I was president of the AFP Greater Atlanta chapter. We established uh, a collegiate chapter at Spelman, and it didn't last a year because it didn't have all the support that was needed. So we're going to do that. We're going to provide some financial support. We're going to provide the leadership for each one of these collegiate chapters that we established to let these students know about, you know, career opportunities and, you know, what they can um, they can do to, to have a, a lucrative career as a fundraiser. And then it's also part of what AADO is, is going to be doing. We're going to have a, a leadership academy where we will bring, you know, um, students in to learn more about the profession. And we're going to have a mentoring program. We're already have moved into that. We get calls every week for people that want mentors. Matter of fact, I was on a a panel a little while ago and somebody asked the question from the audience, how do you find a mentor if you're at an organization where you don't see many people that look like you? And um, I was like, call me, (laughs) just call me, right? Here's my email because I have people all over the country, um, people of color and, and non people of color who want to serve as mentors. Some of the best mentors I've had in my entire career were not black. You know, so you don't have to have a mentor who um, looks exactly like you. My vice president has been one of the best mentors I have ever had um, because he's cared about me and because he he's also a sponsor, connects me, you know, in in the um, in his network. So um, so, you know, it is our plan to continue these opportunities to bring more young people into the, the profession and those that want to transition from the for-profit world. People get into the for-profit world and you know, they're 10 years into their career and they're not satisfied. They might be making huge salaries, but they think, you know what? I really, really, really would like to be involved in an organization that mentors young people, or I have a passion for animals or the environment really, you know, gets me going. So, um, you know, so it's it's just getting the information out there, sharing it, asking people to reach out and share information. Um, I know that uh, some cities do philanthropy in the classroom, where they actually go in to classrooms with, with young kids and even help them understand the word philanthropy, right? Well, if there's something that I just hear is just a thread, and it's something that we've seen on so many conversations, is that if you feel that bubbling inside you to do something, don't just sit with that, like do something. And 
Birgit is raising her hand. Call me. <laughs> Email me. Which Hit. I don't know how. She doesn't have any time. She's got like 10 jobs. <laughs> and she's a grandma. It's like you got Go a busy to the website, family life. But start yeah. a chapter. Lean in with your skills and expertise. If you're not passionate about your job, plug in. The nonprofit world would love to have you. And we need people of all different backgrounds. We do. So much has already you know, happened over the 20 plus years that you have organized what are your dreams? What's your vision for this space? What would you love to see accomplished from this network? Because we've gotten to meet several members and everybody involved is just dynamic and just has such a vision in their heart. Where do you want to see this go? Oh my goodness. I just wanted to see it just go off the charts um, because, you know, we've really blown up a lot in, in the last year. And there's so many that have said, Oh my goodness, it's the best kept secret. I didn't never knew, you know, I never knew that AADO existed. Um, however, I have people every week that's that reach out to me and tell me how AADO impacted their lives in some kind of way. You know what I mean? Um, uh, you know, from saying, oh, I attended a conference that you had in 2006 and I met this person or I had this opportunity or I learned something in a session that really helped me, you know, in, in my career and stay in my career. So I just want to be that support. I want us, you know, in our newsletter, in the AADO newsletter, um, it's all about the, the membership telling their story, sharing wisdom. Um, you know, we, we've done, what books are you reading? You know, all those kinds of things. So it's not, it's, it's about the membership and people will find someone, um, a young woman feeling very isolated, but connected in through AADO. And she just emailed me this morning and said, because of some connections that AADO made for her, she got into AFP's um, new mentoring program. She got a scholarship to our international conference and she's met some black Canadian fundraisers, a group of black Canadian fundraisers. Um, and so she feels, you know, connected in. That's what it's about. You know what I mean? And then I have those the allies that reach out and say, what can we do? You know, we have money to give, but we also want to have some kind of impact. So what does it help us? You know, we would like to, to find a way to support network and you know well you could help us um you know have a discussion you can help us uh with our mentoring program you can host an intern we're we're, we'll, we're going to get our internship program up and running you can host an intern at your organization so somebody can get paid and learn you know um hands-on about fundraising and to grow this pipeline so that you know when I'm talking to you all in a year from now, I can tell you we met our goal. We exceeded our goal. You know, we have 175 new professionals, you know, that are around the country working in the profession. That's my dream. And then then I'm going to back off and I'm going to let everybody keep, you know, keep it going. And my house is in Michigan. I, I inherited my grandmother's house, my parents' house a house that I bought um, uh, next when my parents retired and went to Michigan. And it's two miles in from Lake Michigan. It's about eight miles south of South Haven, Michigan, which is a gorgeous resort town. And I want to renovate all three properties and, you know, spend um, 
the rest of my time there. You deserve it. I was <laughs> going to say, visit? she deserves to deserve be it. on an island somewhere mm-hmm. with a cold drink in her hand, and you can just hang it up and let let the new generation take it over. But I got some work to do before that, because I'm chair like the VFP, and then I've got to be chair for two years, and then I'm past year. So I got six but years you're giving us warning. You're giving us warning. Yeah. I, I love hearing from founders like their dreamy dreams, and I just think that's so great to keep that at the forefront, because we have to keep knowing what we're fighting for and, and right. what we're working for. And I also really appreciate that you gave a plug for the paid non, the paid internship. People, if you are not paying your interns, yeah. pay your interns. That is a worker who's coming in to help your organization. Please, yes, let's put to you. sleep the unpaid internships anywhere in the world. Okay, we need to talk about one good thing. And I am dying to hear about your one good thing. But before you answer... I would like to know, Birgit, what your favorite musical is. And this is a this is a selfish question because I love musicals. I actually was in um, a production of Guys and Dolls. Um, uh, I played, played Sarah Brown. But um, I love West Side Story. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so here's here's my thing. I always say, and this has been, you know, my thing, that she who has knowledge has power. And so through my career, the times when I have been left out of a meeting for whatever reason, and I've told the story, I told the story in um, Leading Women at Tech, which is a a program that they established. I I was in the first cohort um, where they're, you know, raising up uh, women in leadership at Georgia Tech. But I had an experience where I was absolutely excluded from a meeting. Um, and there were five men who were at this meeting and I should have been in it and I found out about it. But I'll tell you very quickly, the donor represented a very, 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 very big gift. And they scheduled this meeting with her, but nobody made arrangements for her parking. Like, isn't that what us <laughs> fundraisers do? We take care of our, yep. our, our donors, our you know, all those things. Nobody made arrangements and where she was going to be parking, she'd still, this was seven years ago, she'd still be running around that building looking for the office. It was too confusing. And I reached out to her and met her at her car. And let me tell you what she told me, the intelligence that she gave me from the car to that meeting was huge. It was $10 million huge. And so when I showed up at the meeting and delivered her, there were five guys that almost passed out when they saw me like, how did you know about this? You know, who told? I didn't stay. I didn't disrupt it. I delivered her. But I wrote a report the next day and I said, by the way, I learned that they were willing to consider $10 million more than what was going to be asked in the meeting. And if it wasn't asked in the meeting, they weren't going to, she wasn't going to offer it. And um, they, the, one of the senior people in that meeting, when he read the report, was floored and wondered, how did I know that? And because it's my job to, to know. And so um, I was never left out of another meeting again. Not because I pounded my fist, not because I said, this is my title and I should have been, not because I managed that donor relationship. All those were the reasons why, but because I had knowledge and I demonstrated my value and they invited me and made sure I was there all the time because I clearly demonstrated that I had a right to be there. He who has knowledge has power. You have power. 
from what you know, what you contribute. And um, I, I preach that to, to particularly to women all the time. Know your value and don't apologize for it. Goodness, thank you. Um, this whole conversation has just given us a moment to pause and you already encourage us to pause. So I just think that's another theme too, is when we're playing this back, pause and process this, y'all. Don't miss the truth that we've gotten to get to sit through and and get to really learn from today. So thank you, Birgit, so much for being vulnerable with us and just sharing so much goodness that we can bring into our sector. We we are ridiculous idealists, so we believe that things can and will get better and they we will. all got to pull together. Um, so I, I find the hope in that and just so much appreciate you being here. How can people connect with you? You clearly have got all the things going on. What's the best way for people, for listeners to connect with you and AADO and everything else? So you can send an email to officers at AOL.com, A-A-D-E-V-O-F-F-I-C-E-R-S at AOL.com. And you can also send a message to me uh, directly at BirgitBurton at AOL.com. Don't laugh at me. My son is like, Mom, AOL, when are you going to let that go? I appreciate you all so much. This has been one of the best experiences I've had in sharing my um, my story and my journey. You all are so um, warm and inviting and caring. I feel that you genuinely care and want to know. This wasn't just, you know, for... Um, the, the sake of looking, you know, looking good. We've got to do something differently than yeah. checking the box. And thank you for yeah. saying that. And I, and I would just say like, as the final takeaway to anyone listening today, I hope that this conversation enlightened you in some way. And I want everybody to take something away from it that is actionable. So if you are someone um, and you've already made this, this decision or you're moving forward with adding more, um, people of color into your organization, that's a good first step. But I'm asking you, what is the next step? Plan your next step. How can you pour into this? How are you looking at your website and at the visuals? Do the people on your website represent the people you are serving? Look at your board. Look at your people of color you're bringing on. What succession plan are you bringing in? And if you don't even do any of that, simply speak up when you see injustice in the world. And that is where the power of community and empathy begin. We can all pour into this and I am here for it. Thank you, Birgit. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. We hope you feel enlightened by this honest, raw conversation with Birgit about what we can do to create more inclusive cultures. It's going to take all our brave, empathetic voices to get there. You can probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission. So come on over and join the good community. It's free and it's an after party for every episode. Sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It helps more friends find our good community. Our production hero is Birgit's number one fan, Julie Comfer. Hello. Our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, 
and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.